Let's pray. God, we thank you once again for this day. Uh, it is the day that you've made, and uh, please help us to rejoice and be glad in it. Um, like the psalmist says, uh, I was glad when I went to the house of the Lord. And we are glad to be in your house today, God. Both, both those of us here in person and those of us watching online. I pray, God, now as we turn to your word, that you would reveal to us what it is that you have for us. I pray, God, that you would speak to us from the words of life. I pray, God, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. And I pray, God, that we would not leave here unchanged because we've had an encounter with the living God. Uh, we need you more than anything this world can give us. And so we ask that even this morning, you might just give us a little bit more of you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Notice some of you sat down without being given permission. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, good morning. So good to be with you all. This is just, uh, it's just an exciting morning. And I love, I, I, I say this every time, but I mean it. And my wife said it earlier, I love family Sundays. I love having all of the children in here with us. I know it's not easy for you all kids to sit through a sermon, uh, but it is awesome to be together as an entire church family. And I know, you can, yeah, you can clap. I know, I know some folks might be like, why you do communion and baptisms on family Sunday? Like it should be the shortest service. And just, I know that, but, but we want our children to experience what happens in church. And I want them to see communion and begin to understand what it means. And I want them to see baptisms and understand what that means. And so as I try and say every, uh, every time we have a family Sunday, I have four of my own. Uh, I understand the chaos and the distractions of children. Don't stress if your kids are in here and they're fidgeting. Uh, it doesn't bother me. I'm, I'm good with it. I, I know it intimately. <laughs> uh, we're in Mark again today. We're in Mark chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 2. Uh, and before I do that, I just want to say this one other thing. I want to say Happy Lunar New Year. Uh, to all of you, especially those of us, and there are many in this congregation who come from Eastern cultures. I know that's a very big deal, and I know it happened this past week. So uh, a happy Lunar New Year congregation here at ALCF. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come 
and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I would wait until I was sure that everyone was asleep. And then as quietly as I could, I would tiptoe over to the bunk bed and I would quietly start to shake the boy awake. When he came to consciousness, I would give him the universal symbol to be quiet. I would say, get dressed and meet me outside. And in his groggy state, he would try and get out of his sleeping bag and climb down from the bunk and get dressed. And then he would meet me outside on a Friday night in the middle of summer in the backwoods of Maine. As he stepped out of the cabin, I would be sure to catch the door so that it would not slam and wake up the rest of the campers who were asleep in their bunks. I would simply say, follow me, and we would begin to walk. We would walk across a big field. If the, if the, I was gonna say the sun, it's nighttime. If the moon was out, there might be some moonlight on the field, and we would head across that field to the woods on the other side. As we came into the shadows of the woods on the other side of that field, a voice from the darkness would yell, halt, and it would freak the kid out. After the halt, there would be a flicker of light and then a flame as a torch was lit. That torch would be handed to this camper and then he would be directed to start down a path, the entrance to which was sitting right there in front of him, towards a small flame that could be seen further down in the woods. He's carrying a torch, sometimes just as big as he is. I'm following behind and we're walking down a path in the middle of the night. As we reached the flame that we could see, it's a, we called it a number 10 can. It's a big tin can filled with kerosene and lit on fire and sitting there in the path. It looks like nobody is there, but as we approach that can, one of the counselors steps out from the dark and all he says is this. He says, honor. A man of honor is a man of integrity. He sets high standards for himself and consistently attempts to live up to them. Titus 2, 7 and 8 say, in everything, set them an example by doing what is right. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose us may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Honor. And then he would step back into the shadows and the camper and I would continue down the path to the next flaming pot. Six more of them. Courage, chivalry, purity, loyalty, obedience, and dedication. After the last little pot, we could see a little bit further down the path a clearing. And as we headed down to that clearing and came out into it, there would be a full campfire going. And standing around that campfire would be a who's who of that camp that I worked at for so many summers growing up. The camp director the assistant camp director, the program directors, the senior counselors, uh, the, the leadership. And as this sheepish camper walked into that clearing, we would wait for all the other junior counselors to come who had given their spiels at each of the little fire stations. And when they arrived, I would turn to this camper and I would say something like this. We've been watching you this week. We've been watching you and as we have seen you this week, we have seen you acting with honor, with courage, with chivalry and purity and loyalty and obedience and dedication. 
And then we would take the next 15 minutes. We would go around that campfire and everyone would speak into that boy's life. We would tell them what we saw in them that week. We would encourage them. We would affirm them. And then we would pray over them. It was Friday night. They'd been at a week of summer camp. The next day we were sending them home with their parents back to school and friends and MTV and video games and all the challenges and temptations that come along with that. And before we did, we took a moment to speak into his life and say, we see something in you. And as we headed back up the path, that camper and I with the torch, I would say one more thing to him. I would say, don't tell anyone else about this. Tell your parents. But the only campers who ever knew that there was such a thing as the camper of the week were the ones who were awarded the camper of the week. It is amazing how powerful those ceremonies were. I spent probably eight or nine summers of my life at that camp and have amazing memories. Camp for Christian camp for boys in Maine. Amazing memories. By far, by far my favorite memories are the memories of doing those cow ceremonies, camper of the week uh, ceremonies on Friday nights because they had lifelong ramifications for the boys that we did those for. And I know that firsthand because as a camper, I fooled everybody and I was the camper of the week one time. That was like 27 years ago, and I still can remember it like it was yesterday. It, has, it is one of the most formative experiences of my life. Chaos of Family Sunday. <laughs> it's mine. It is so powerful to be singled out and to be affirmed. It is so powerful for others to speak into our lives and say, I see something in you. And the reason for that is because we are built to long for that. There is a longing in each one of our hearts to feel like we are seen, known, loved, and affirmed. And many of us have felt those feelings. It may not have been at the Camper of the Week ceremony at New England Frontier Camp in Lovell, Maine, but maybe you were invited to go on the reward trip for the top producers at your company. It feels good, doesn't it? It feels good to be singled out, to be affirmed, to be told you've done a good job. Maybe it's a celebratory dinner with your family because you got straight A's on your report card or some A's on your report card or you got an A on your report card. <laughs> it feels good. It, 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 it might be uh, that you got your name in the local paper because you led your team that week in scoring or yards or goals or whatever it is. There is something very powerful about being affirmed when we do something good. That's a two-sided coin though because there is something very destructive about being singled out when we mess up. As good as it feels to be praised for doing something good, the, the, the discouragement that comes from being held up as an example of what not to do is 10 times worse, is it not? And we live in a world that loves failure. Not our own, but we love other people's failure. We live in a world and a culture that is just waiting to pounce for when we mess up. We've talked about cancel culture in the past. Cancel culture is not just for celebrities and politicians. It's for all of us. 
We live in a world that loves to rub our noses in it when we screw up and fail, and it can be crushing. To be fired from a job can have lifelong ramifications. To be cut from a team can stay with you forever. It was seventh grade and I'm still bitter about it. So I'm like walking, talking evidence of it. It is, it is crushing to be, as, as, as encouraging as it is, to be affirmed and told you've done something well, to be held out as an example of doing something wrong is, is like so much worse. And here's the irony. What do we most need when we are down? Look, failure, disappointment, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time, it is universal. We're all gonna do it. If you haven't done it yet, just, just get ready because it's coming at some point. Some of us have a lot of them under our belts. It's gonna happen to all of us. And what do we most need when we enter into those seasons of life where we have messed something up, where we have done something wrong, where we have failed? Someone just said a stiff drink and that is not the answer. We need what we get when we do something right. We need to be affirmed, not stroked, not, not told lies, not, not, you know, oh, it's gonna, all going to be okay. But when we are at our lowest, what do we most need? We need someone to come alongside us and say, it's going to be okay. I see something in you. This is not permanent. This is not forever. It, it, it's going to get better than this. But what do we usually get when we're at our lowest? We get, we get kicked while we're down. We get our nose rubbed in it. We get everyone else pointing it out and reminding us of how, how crummy a job we did. At least that's how the world does it. It's not how God does it. And that is the beautiful truth that we are going to uncover, I think, as we work through this text on the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. We are continuing today in our series in Mark called Let's Go. As I announced last week, we're hit, we were past the halfway point. We are, we are coming down the other side of the mountain, just like Jesus and his disciples did after the transfiguration. And the passage we are looking at today is one of, I think, the stranger passages in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, It's one of those passages where it's like, this seems like a really big deal. Why does Mark only give it like six or seven verses? And like, what is actually going on here? We all know about this. If we've been in church for a while, we know about this transfiguration. But like, what, what is happening? What is the deal? What does it mean? And we're going to do our best to try and figure that out this morning. If you've been hanging with us for a little while, uh, I'm going to sound like a broken record, which I know I do a lot of weeks, but that's just the way it is. What do I say over and over and over again is like one of the most important things we can do when we're trying to figure out what a passage is trying to teach us. What do we need to look at? I heard it. Context. Context, context, context. It is, it is so critical when we're trying to understand a passage of Scripture, and that is so true in this passage that we are going to look at today, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. So what is the context that leads us into the passage that we are looking at today? Well, it's the passage we looked at last week, which is Jesus healing the blind man, taking multiple touches for him to see clearly, and then what happens? Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of, we think, all the disciples, says to him, you are the Christ. It's the high point in the Gospel of Mark. It's the first time any Jewish person in the whole Gospel has affirmed Jesus Christ for who he is. And it's like, yes, it's go time, let's go, nailed it. And then what does Jesus say? He says, yes, that means I'm going to have to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to die. And Peter rebukes him. And it's like Peter goes from the highest of high, I see something in you, you're doing something well, to 
Get behind me, Satan. And as we talked about last week, if Jesus is calling you Satan, it is not good. (laughs) Right? Either you are Satan, and that's really bad, or you're not Satan, and you don't want to be compared to him. Peter goes from the highest of high, and then he face plants just immediately to the lowest of low. And what does verse 2 in our passage tell us? Six days later. So I don't think it takes too much uh, interpretive gymnastics to say for six days, Peter and his buddies have been sitting in this. And probably for six days, they've been like, what is going on? Who is this guy? Is he the Christ or isn't he? I kind of like that I get to be with him, but I'm also kind of scared. But I just really messed up. He called me Satan in front of everybody. He dressed me down in front of everybody. He probably for six days has been wondering when is the moment he's going to send me home? When is the moment he's going to tell me this isn't working out? What we're going to see as we get into this passage is the truth that Jesus gives us just what we need, not what we deserve. Jesus gives us just what we need, not what we deserve, and we're going to see two things, probably the two things we need more than anything in the world, and we're going to see that Jesus gives them to him in this, gives them to us in this recounting of his transfiguration. The first thing is this. We need to see who Jesus really is. We need to see who Jesus really is. So let me uh, try and help us enter into this story, okay? So it's not in the text, but just if we can imagine what it was like. Here are Peter and the disciples, sound asleep. It's been a long six days of stressing out over where this whole thing is headed. And in the middle of the night, Peter feels someone shaking him awake. And it's Jesus. And I don't know if he made this motion, but he said, shh. He said, he didn't say it in English, but he said, shh. Get dressed and meet me outside. Don't wake up the others. And so Peter sheepishly gets dressed meets him outside, doesn't let the door slam as he leaves the cabin. And he sees that James and John are there, but none of the others. And then Jesus just says, follow me. And off they go into the night. Maybe there was torch, a torch. Maybe not. Maybe it was just moonlight. Think of the questions that are going through their mind in this moment. What is he happening? Where is he taking us? Is this, is this where it all comes to an end? Is this where he tells us, is this where he sends us home? Peter might be like, I might be fishing by this time tomorrow morning. Lots of questions, and then, and then the path starts to go up, and they start climbing, and they start climbing, and they start climbing. Maybe they can tell that there's a cloud sitting at the top of the mountain. Maybe they can't, but as they begin to get to the top of the mountain, they recognize that things start to feel different because they're entering into a cloud. They can't see the stars anymore. It feels a little bit eerie. This doesn't feel like a normal cloud, which they would have been used to, and as they arrive at the top of the mountain, some strange things start happening. All of a sudden, in the darkness of the the fog, there's a light, and the light is Jesus himself. He's glowing. He's radiating light. And all of a sudden, two more guys are there talking with Jesus, and they don't know why, but they know that they're Moses and Elijah. And then all of a sudden, a voice starts speaking out of the cloud, and they don't know for sure, but they're pretty sure that's God the Father who is speaking. And, and it doesn't, Mark doesn't say this, but in the Old Testament, when God showed up in a cloud, oftentimes there was thunder and there was lightning. And so I love when Mark tells us in verse 5, verse 6, excuse me, they were terrified. Like, duh, of course. And so if we are going to try and figure out what's going on here, we've got to go way back. We've got to go back to a guy named Moses. 
Now, I know a lot of us, uh, even if you don't come to church regularly or whatever, most of us know who Moses is. He was the great deliverer of Israel in the Old Testament. God used him to deliver his, his children, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. He led the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years, and he prepared them to enter the promised land. One of the greatest leaders in the history of Israel. And before he died, right before the Israelites were about to enter the promised land, Moses promised something, or God promised something through Moses to the Israelites. This is from Deuteronomy 18, verses 15, 17, and 18. This is what he said, Moses speaking to the Israelites. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Skip ahead to verse 17. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. God told the Israelites through Moses one day he was going to send another prophet just like Moses. And so when we come down to the the time of the, the disciples, where they are with Jesus standing on this mountain, they knew about that promise. Israel had been waiting for the prophet like Moses who was gonna arrive and they'd also been waiting for the Messiah and look, there might've been some conflation there like maybe the prophet like Moses is also gonna be the Messiah. And what do we know about Moses and how he spoke with God? He went up on a mountain into a cloud. The voice of God spoke from the cloud. When Moses came back down, what did the people see? He was shining. And so here are the disciples up on this mountain with Jesus and with Moses. And there's a cloud and God is speaking and Jesus is shining. And it's like what used to be confusing, it's now like this is amazing because Jesus is showing his disciples that prophet like Moses that you've been waiting for so long. It's me. The word in verse two that the ESV translates transfigured, we call this the transfiguration, uh, it comes from a Greek word that we get our English word metamorphosis from. It means a radical transformation. So what is happening in this moment? They are seeing Jesus for who he really is. Now I need to be careful about that because a very, an orthodox good theology, Christology of Jesus Christ does not say that he's half man and half God. It does not say that he's God and he put on an outfit that looked like a man. An orthodox understanding of who Jesus Christ is is that he is fully man and that he is fully God. How is that possible? It's a mystery, but God can do anything. And so in his time here on earth, most people only caught a glimpse of the human side of Jesus. But some people, including Peter, James, and John, caught a vision into heaven and they saw Jesus in his divine nature. What is he doing for them in this moment? At their lowest, when they have screwed up the most, when, well, not quite, we'll we'll get to that later. When they have really jacked things up and like they probably should just be sent home, Jesus has taken them from the deep dark valley to the bright mountaintop. He has lifted their heads and he has said, I know you are confused about who I am. Let me just clear this up for you by giving you a vision of glory. I am the Christ. I am not the Christ that you expect. I am the true Christ. And let me just show you that for a moment. What did they need in their low point? Not to have their faces rubbed, their noses rubbed in it. 
They needed to be affirmed and encouraged. And that is exactly what Jesus did through the transfiguration. He lifted them up on the mountain and he let them see who he was clearly. My grandfather was a preacher. Uh, he was the pastor of a church in downtown Boston called Park Street Church in the, back in the 70s and the 80s. And there was a church, uh, a Baptist church across the street, across Tremont Street from Park Street Church uh, that was called Tremont Temple Baptist Church. My grandfather used to tell this story about one of the former pastors at that church in Boston. He said one evening uh, they were having a congregational meeting. And as often happens in those type of meetings, emotions were running high and things began to get tense. And there was a woman who was a member of the congregation uh, who just in the moment kind of lost her mind. And she was upset and she was angry and she was hurt. And so she stood up in the middle of that, that meeting and she just went off. And she, she cut down the pastor and you stink at this and why are you doing this and, and the congregation and we're not doing the things we should be doing and why are things the way that they are? And it was so bad that by the time she finished and you know that awkward silence that just hangs out over a group, uh, the pastor said there's nothing else for us to do except close the meeting. And so he prayed and sent everybody home. When she got home that night, uh, she was overcome with remorse. She was overcome with regret for how she'd acted and the things that she had said. And before she went to bed that night, she wrote a letter to that pastor, it was before email, uh, apologizing, uh, repenting, and saying, I'm sorry and I was wrong. The next morning, first thing, she mailed it off. Then she waited. Day after day after day, I wanna say it was six days, but I don't know for sure, waiting. Wondering what the response would be. Would there be any response at all? Cancel culture. Would it be you need to come in and sit before the elders? Would it be you need to come in and, and stand before the congregation? Would it be there's gonna be some church discipline we need to enact? And when she did get the envelope with the return address of Tremont Temple Baptist Church in Boston, Massachusetts, and she opened it up with great trepidation, there were only three words written on the card. Dear Miss, forgiven, forgotten, forever. What did she need in that moment? To be kicked while she was down? To have her nose rubbed in it? She needed to be pointed to Christ. She needed to be lifted up out of the frustration, disappointment of, of having messed up and pointed to the only one who can do anything about it. And I love what that pastor did because he had every right to say, oh, we need to talk about this. But simply, he pointed her to Jesus Christ. He said, you are forgiven, it is forgotten, and it is forever. Amen. And someone in here this morning needs to hear that. Someone needs to hear this morning, our failures are not final. Our screw-ups and face plants do not disqualify us from discipleship with Jesus Christ. Because he knows what we need and he gives it to us. And when we are down in the dumps, he is the lifter of our head. Here's the, here's the um, like awkward, uh, uncomfortable truth about this passage. We may actually have to get down into the dark valley of despair before we can see clearly who Jesus is. It might actually be in the wake of losing our job that we actually can have our eyes open to see Jesus for who he really is. It might just be in the wake of being cut from the team or in the wake of that relationship falling apart that we are fragile, that we are soft enough 
that Jesus can actually do for us what we need done, and that is open our eyes and give us a vision of who he really is, give us a vision of glory. Because we need to see Jesus for who he really is, and the, just the beautiful thing about this passage is that is exactly what he did for Peter, James, and John. We need to see Jesus for who he really is. Second thing we need. We need to see Jesus for who he really is, and we need Jesus' presence. We need Jesus' presence. So again, let's try and get a picture of what's going up here, going on up here on this mountaintop. So uh, cloud, God speaking out loud. Jesus is there. He's, 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 he looks different, something radically transformed. He's talking. I love that Mark says that. He's talking with Moses and Elijah to be a fly. There was no wall, but to be a fly listening in on that conversation. I just imagine Peter, James, and John like cowering behind some rocks. And Jesus and Moses and Elijah are like, hey, long time no see. How's it going? You know, and Jesus is like, well, I'm learning how, I learned how to make a great kitchen table. Uh, like I created the whole world. And so it was not a big deal to do chairs and tables, but it's going great. And, and you know, they're like, Moses and Elijah are like, how are these guys doing? And Jesus is like, a lot of potential. A lot, lot of potential. <laughs> what is happening in this moment? It's funny to hear the scholars, they argue about which mountain this actually happened on. Well, was it Mount Tabor or Mount, Hor- Mount Hermon? It doesn't matter. Because where are the, these disciples in this moment? They're in heaven. They are, they are getting a peek into the heavenly realm. God's presence is there. He's speaking audibly. Jesus is there in all of his divine glory. Moses and Elijah are there. They are in an otherworldly experience. And then what happens... Verse 8, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. It almost seems like a throwaway verse, like just moving the narrative along. And I actually think it's the most important verse in the whole passage. Because they are having this amazing, otherworldly, heavenly vision. Not a vision, it's actually happening. And then as suddenly as it started, it's over. But what? Jesus is still there. Look, these guys are just flailing. They have been flailing for eight and a half chapters. They're going to continue to flail. I alluded to this earlier. I almost said this was Peter's lowest moment. It's not. He's going lower from here, right? I tell you the truth. I do not know that man. And if you or I were Jesus, what would we do? We'd be like, hey guys, it's been a good run. Thought this was going to go a little bit differently. Thanks for all your effort. Uh, It's time to go home and I'm just going to find a new group of guys who actually can pick up a little bit more quickly what I'm putting down here. But that's not what he does. God and Moses and Elijah go back to the heavenly realm. And if I'm Jesus, I would have been like, take me with you. But he stays with his disciples. Because his promise is that his call to discipleship is not so that you can just flail and fumble on your own. His promise is that he will be with us every single step of the way. More than anything in the world, we need to be able to see who Jesus is clearly. But after we have done that, the, the next thing we need most, more than anything in the world is his presence with us. Because if we try and do this thing on our own, we are done. We can't, we can't cause ourselves to draw another breath. We can't cause our heart to beat one more time. 
but Jesus can do anything. And so if he is with us, we can go through anything that he might take us through. We need his presence more than anything. And after all of this has happened, everything goes away, it's quiet, and the stars are out again, and Peter and James and John are just dumbfounded. But guess what? Jesus is still there. He is still with them, and he will be with them until the end. I saw an amazing story this week. Uh, I don't do a ton of social media, uh, but there are some nuggets that you can see there, and I saw this one this week. Uh, It was a story about a couple uh, in China who are married. They met in 2011. I don't know when they got married, but they met in 2011, and they've got kids, and uh, the dad, the husband, was looking through some of his wife's old photographs to show his daughters how they looked like their mother. And as he was looking through these photographs, he came on one, it was taken in the year 2000, and it stopped him in his tracks because as he looked at this picture of his wife, he saw someone else he recognized in the picture, himself. She was at a park, uh, uh, she was at a, a monument in China having her picture taken. 11 years before they were married, 11 years before they met, excuse me. And standing in the background of the picture is him in the same place, at the same time, having his picture taken as well. Is that not amazing? Church, listen to me. One day we are going to be going back through the photo album of our lives. One day we are going to be scrolling through the photos app on our life. And we're going to start to recognize something strange, that there is somebody in every single picture that we recognize. We're going to be looking at the good pictures of Friday night pizza with our family and that trip to Europe and that day we got our dream job and the day we left our dream job. And we're going to see someone in those pictures that we recognize. And then we're going to be looking at the pictures of the hard times when we didn't know which way was up, when we had failed spectacularly, when we didn't know who God was or where he was and we were like, where are you? We're going to look at that picture from the hospital room and that picture from the courtroom and that picture from the funeral home and we're going to see someone in the background and we're going to be like, he was there for that too? Because Jesus Christ is going to be in every picture of our lives for those of us who have bowed our knee to him. We need more than anything his presence and whether you can feel his presence or not, he is there. He is guarding, he is guiding, he is leading, and he is protecting even in the the, the days and the weeks and the months where you're like, where are you, God? Moses uh, promised something, God promised something else to the Israelites through Moses. Deuteronomy 31.8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. After everyone is gone, Jesus is still with us because he gives us what we need, not what we deserve. It would be another dark night, uh, not too long after this one, when Jesus took his disciples up on the mountain and was transfigured before him. Another dark night, another night where the disciples couldn't stay awake. Another night where there was a light in the darkness, a torch coming towards them. Someone yelling, halt, and another hill that Jesus had to climb. Only, 
unlike when he climbed the mountain to be transfigured and God's presence was waiting for him at the top. There was no God's presence waiting for him at the top of the hill called Calvary. Because as Jesus climbed that hill and was nailed to the cross and was lifted up for all the world to see, everyone there caught a vision of glory, just like the disciples did on the Mount of Transfiguration, but in a very different sense. As Jesus hung on that cross and he took the sin of the world onto himself, God the Father's presence did not arrive, it departed. Because God cannot coexist with sin. And as Jesus took your sin and mine onto him on the cross, he experienced separation in his human nature. He experienced the separation from God that we deserved because of our sin. And yet three days later, in the power of the Spirit of God, he rose from the dead. And in doing so, he gave us exactly what we needed. Because Jesus experienced separation from the Father, you and I do not need to. For all who would bow their knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life, we are welcomed into divine communion. We are given a vision of glory with God himself. And there is a letter waiting for every one of us with three words on it, forgiven, forgotten, forever. So if you feel like someone's trying to wake you up in the middle of the night and telling you to follow him, even though you may not be totally sure about who he is, even though you may not be totally sure about what he wants you to do, where he's going to lead you, what he's going to ask you for. Go with him. Follow him. Because he will give you exactly what you need. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are God and that we are not. That you are the author of life, that you are the sovereign of creation that all of our hope is found in you. God, there are some here today who have been walking with you for a long time and the cry of their heart is to know you more and God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself and give them a, a clearer vision of who you are. Remind them of your presence. God, there are some here today who don't know who you are and pray, I pray God that you would reveal yourself to them. I pray that you would give them a vision of who you are, a vision of your glory, and that you would be with them from here on out. God, I pray for someone today who is, who is walking through disappointment, who is walking through, uh, maybe it's failure or frustration, uh, who feels like the world is kicking them while they are down and just simply rubbing their noses in it. I pray that you would lift up their head. I pray that you would lift up their eyes Pray that you would take them from the dark valley of despair to the high mountaintop of light where you are the source of the light. God, we ask that you would do what only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're now going to transition into our time of communion. Communion, uh, like baptism, is one of the... um, one of the sacraments that we observe to remember who Jesus Christ is, 
who we are in light of him and what he has done for us. Uh, Scripture is clear that communion is reserved for those who have made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of their life. And so if you're with us today or watching online and that would not, you could not say that's true for you, I would ask you just to uh, pass on joining with us uh, in taking communion this morning. But I also would say there is no better time than right now to make the decision to make Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life. If you would like to do that, I would love to speak to you after service. Uh, or if you're not here in person, you can reach out to us at info at ALCF. Net. Uh, we're just going to have a moment of quiet where we'll have a little bit of music playing while we prepare our hearts to take the elements. I would encourage you, I can hear that some of you already have, I would encourage you to start opening them because they, the, it might not, it, it can take a little bit to, to get into this packaging. But after we have just a few moments of silence, uh, I'll be back and lead us in taking uh, the elements together. Please stand. If you will take the bread. Hear these words from scripture. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Hallelujah. Amen. You can clap for that. Uh, we're now going to have uh, a song of reflection. Uh, the worship team will lead us in uh, another song of worship. This is an opportunity to do any business, any conversation you need to have with God. Um, and then we'll be back and we're going to baptize uh, two believers today. Uh, let's continue our worship. i 
It is uh, super exciting to be able to celebrate the baptism of two believers today. Uh, you can be seated. I want to be really clear as we introduce uh, baptism that this is not what Scripture says saves us. This is not the moment that these believers are going um, from death to life. That moment came when they bowed their knee and confessed with their mouth that Jesus Christ was Lord of their life. <laughs> baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. This is a declaration to the world publicly that they have decided to follow Jesus. And so I'm going to invite Benara you. Yeah, Benara you. Sorry, we've got two candidates. Benara, come on down. And Benara is just going to share a few words about uh, why she wants to get baptized. Hi. Um, hi, my name is Binara, uh, and I've been going to ALCF for three years. Um, so I grew up as in a Christian household, going to church with my family every Sunday. Um, I've witnessed miracles that God has done in my life and my family's life, such as my sister's cancer survival and um, surviving our immigration life with $100 in our parents' bank account. So I, I knew God definitely um, I knew God definitely existed, and he had an ability to make the impossible possible. Um, how, however, I was uncertain if I was saved. Um, I moved to the Bay Area three years ago and was blessed with a great job and traveled wherever I wanted to go. Um, I thought the world was a happy place, and I thought I was a good person. In the beginning of COVID, I started a relationship with someone that was not Christ-oriented. Um, we did have we, we did fun activities and adventures, ha had fun adventures together, and I was really happy to be in a relationship. However, all the fun activities and my job and my relationship didn't seem to fulfill me. I still felt empty inside. Um, I joined the women's Bible study group at ALCF and got close to uh, my Bible study uh, leader, Margie, uh, who is next to me. Um, Margie offered me a one-to-one -one Bible study over FaceTime during COVID, and the study was so foundational and life-changing to me. I learned that I felt empty because I didn't have God as my identity. I didn't have an identity, and I was trying to fill my emptiness with fun, spontaneous travels and force the relationship to be happy. I realized that nothing could fulfill me except God. I was overwhelmed with joy that I found an answer to my emptiness. Um, God also um, showed me how dark this world was and re revealed all my sins that I uh, didn't see and blinded by. He also showed me how the Holy Spirit chose me to save me by uh, Jesus dying across for me and how Jesus shed his blood to for forgive all my sins. 
Um, it also encouraged me to end the relationship that was not Christ-oriented. Um, I was sad because we built a lot of memories together, but I thought I would, uh, um, but I um, thought I would rather be sad but fulfilling than be happy with emptiness. I was so grateful that God had me go through this experience because now my heart is filled with the Holy Spirit, and I'm very sure that I'm saved without a doubt. <laughs> Um, for what he did for me and his grace for me, I have to declare to live for God and declare to, to the world that I'm, I am his. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I forgot to take Turn this way. Oh, this way. Benara, based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I baptize you now in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, next, I want to invite Jules Marino, 82 years young, into the pool to be baptized. Jules is going to share just a few comments about why he'd like to be baptized. Well, I normally can, can speak for hours, but I am overwhelmed with this incredible experience in my life. It was 82 years ago I was baptized a Catholic, and I've been wandering around until now till an incredible person in a group I met up with and uh, introduced me to Jesus. And it changed my life. For the past few years, I've had a changed life living with them. And I'd like to thank them from up here so you all can hear it, how much I love them. Say, Jane, thank you. Eileen, thank you. Christy, thank you. And especially, I call her Mother Teresa. She's incredible, Sylvia, because without Sylvia, I'd still be wandering around the world lost. And I thank you all. And I really applaud you up here. And thank you, ladies. I love you. Um, I, I guess I'm just, I have chosen to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. And I, I hope before this pandemic, um, or after this pandemic is up, that I can meet some of you here because it, it, it's just amazing to see all these beautiful faces here, and I would hope to know some of you sometime better. It would be a wonderful experience to get involved here. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity for changing my life. It's going to be a struggle because I've already felt the forces working against me being here. I'm very sensitive about that, but they're not going to win because... Yeah, that's right. I have won. Thank you so much. Turn this way. Face me. I'm sorry. I'm just a wreck. Jules, based on your profession that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, I baptize you now in the name of the Father, 
and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? Please, please stand to receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You are loved and you're prayed for and you're sent. Es evidente tú. Tu...